From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Dennis Funk, filling in for Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Everything of nature was completely uh, destroyed. As far as the trees are concerned, there, were, there, was, there was nothing left. Everything was leveled, looked like a moon landscape. You can say uh, Hiroshima-like. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and tiny reverberations we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week. You don't pick and choose your wars. Your country's at war, it's at war, period. You don't pick and choose whether you approve of it or not. That's nonsense. That's chaos. When wars are over and arms laid down, new borders drawn up and families reunited, they aren't exactly finished. Cities, landscapes, entire lives need to be rebuilt, and hopefully some lessons are learned as well. At Third Coast, we hear many radio documentaries about war, and today we're sharing two stories of conflicts that echo into the present day. Later in the hour, we'll look at a secret Pentagon study whose mixed findings guided the course of the Vietnam War. But first, we'll visit the land fought on nearly a hundred years ago, during World War I. When the First World War ended in 1918, more than 10 million soldiers were killed after four years of fighting across Europe, Africa, the Middle East and Asia. But for as huge a toll that the Great War took on human life, the landscape was markedly devastated. For example, in the Flemish countryside near the Belgian city of Ypres, not a living tree or blade of grass survived after the muddy trenches and barbed wire were vacated. Producer Inixi and her young son Laszlo visited these Flanders fields to see how the scars from the war to end our wars were still visible today. And I do me old. I'm almost four. We're in an old tower on top of the mountain that overlooks Ypres. Or Ypres. We look straight into the forest and we're looking out over back towards Ghent. What do you see? A church. A church. Sheep. Sheep. Yeah, it's hard to tell from up here that this would have all been gone at one point. Like no trees, nothing. It looks quite cultivated. But when we were coming up through the forest, I could picture soldiers being in there. It's a sort of uh, forest with big trees and lots of space in between the trees and dappled light. And I can imagine soldiers either hiding there or bunking down there or something like that. And when we were driving here, I was looking at the map and the whole area around Ypres is just like, must be at least a hundred crosses for the different cemeteries that are around here. But that's not something you see from up here. 
after the war everything was flat eh? in Ypres there were no two stones upon each other so as far as the trees are concerned there were there was was nothing left this is René de Clerc he lives near Ypres out in the countryside where the German trenches of Bayernwald used to be he's restored some of them and opened them up to the public the the German trenches and the English trenches were only 200 yards from each other here so and they were they have been shooting three years to each other so you can imagine that there was nothing standing right anymore it was uh, mud and puppies and 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 that was it I'm Christoph Blick I'm uh, working as uh, educational and uh, scientific officer in this museum the Memorial Museum Passion 1917 and uh, I'd like to explain you about the influence of the Great War on the landscape of Passchendaele and Zonnebeek. What you see nowadays is really very young. It's uh, not, not even 100 years old. Everything was leveled. It looked like a moon landscape. It was like, you can say, uh, Hiroshima-like. Everything of nature was completely uh, destroyed and um, overplowed by the shelling. Before the war, it basically looked a bit like Normandy. So you had fields with hedges. And it was a very nice rural countryside, um, typical medieval-like uh, field, uh, landscape. And after the war, um, the hedges were replaced by Balboa. So I'm here at a mine crater called the Pool of Peace. And it seems to be closed off, so I'm walking around and there's a bit of a really spindly fence around it, just like a couple of pieces of wire um, strung along by tree stumps. And uh, I found a little entrance, so I'm going to go inside. It looks like there's actually a little bunker down here um, that might be used by uh, teenagers or something for drinking. And it's quite overgrown. I'm having to duck around trees and hop over logs and uh, I don't see anything yet and it's actually just occurred to me that this might be fenced off because there are still mines here so <laughs> I'm not so smart sometimes so I'm actually going to turn around and go back and uh, see if I can kind of find a legitimate way in I've found the entrance, and this is called the Spanbroekmolen, and uh, it says here that the Spanbroekmolen crater is the result of an underground explosion of an ammunition depot, together with the explosion of 18... After three years of trial eh, to, to shoot, they could not go over, so they decided to go under the trenches of the Germans. So they, they started to dig mines under the, the, sh the, the trenches of the Germans, and uh, on uh, 26 places they put 25 ton of ammonal that they exploded uh, in June 1917 at two, uh, half past two in the morning. And that was uh, an explosion that was from here uh, heard and fell till London. And now it looks like a lovely pond, complete with frogs. Quack! Quack! And lily pads. And shotguns in the background. Those shots are actually gas canisters that are being fired over the fields so that the birds don't eat the seeds, a sort of modern-day scarecrow. 
but it does lend a certain authenticity to the place. The mine crater isn't signed at all. It's just, it kind of stands out because it's this overgrown circle um, of bushes and trees in the middle of very neatly cultivated fields. Uh, so I actually had to guess that it was here and walk around to find the entrance. The graveyard, however, across the street from it, which commemorates the soldiers that were killed in the attack, was marked. So uh, yeah. this is then the picture of what you've seen earlier today. Yeah. And the pool of peace. Yeah, that looks and really different. And in the photo that I'm looking at, it's just basically a crater. It, it looks there's nothing growing around it. It's a big pile of dirt all around and a couple of soldiers on either side looking down into it and it looks like there's nothing alive anywhere close to it. Very different from what I saw today. When you look at the landscape, if you're driving through it or even if you wake up in the morning and you look outside, do you still see a war that you never knew or that you've heard a lot about or what, what do you see? Oh, uh, you know, you, you start to live with it. Um, the first time really when uh, when I got very cold in my heart was uh, when we restored the, the, the trenches, the German trenches here. Because then you see really the rest of, of all the guys who had a fight here uh, in very severe circumstances. We never should forget that. That was... Uh, the moment that changed my life, really. That's Laszlo, running through the restored trenches at Byronwald. And I have to say, it feels a bit odd. It's interesting to see him enjoying it, but when I see the trenches, I see men sitting in there during the middle of a war. And here Laszlo is running through there laughing. I feel the need to tell him what went on, but he's, he's much too young, and I want to let him enjoy it. There you are. Where you lost? I lost. Farmers are using sometimes the things created by war also. So you can actually have a trench serving nowadays as a stream or irrigation canal. Also shell holes were used as little pools to give water to the cows or use it as a water reservoir. But basically what happened more is that they use scrap as items to use on the fields. For example, you have this weapon, it's called Livens Projector. Livens Projector is basically a tube and heavy steel where they uh, fired projectiles from. And you often see these tubes used as a roller. They fill them up with cement and use them as rollers. And also, what you will definitely see in the landscape is the use of screw pickets. It's uh, like an, uh, an iron pigtail because it has a crawl in it. And uh, these screw pickets were used for barbed wire. And the farmers still use them to put a barbed wire up. Mm -hmm. So it's a good way of recycling World War I scrap and uh, still use it. So uh, if you imagine there is a cannon here. Mm -hmm. You see Ypres down there? So this, this, these cannons were able to shoot about 5 kilometers, 30 kilo of ammunition, wow. and they were firing consistently to the to the city from where you're back to where it is now yeah yeah we are now walking along a very narrow 
strip of grass between a cornfield and a potato field. And uh, there's not quite enough room for a third person. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes it very charming, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the farmers tilling these fields would find stuff all the time. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, if we would look, we would find. But it's a little too dry now. It's mm -hmm. it's better because you have done the color difference when it has rained. So the, the, then the field is dark and, and you, you will find the, the pieces of shrapnel. And lo and behold, we did find one. A piece of lead shrapnel, like the head of a small mushroom, heavy in the hand. It was so exciting to find one that René immediately switched into his native language, Dutch. Artillery shells were loaded with pieces like these, and when they hit the ground, the shrapnel flew everywhere, René says, and if you got hit by one of those, hundreds of thousands of soldiers were killed by this here, if not immediately, then by infection or complications afterwards. And not just the soldiers either, but the horses that were being used by the soldiers too. They say that one of the worst sounds ever was the sound of wounded horses screaming, stuck in the mud, basically just waiting to die. The soldiers in the trenches heard it every night, along with all of the other things they had to deal with. The cold, the damp, rotting feet, shrapnel. That's shrapnel. That's actually shrapnel. During the Battle of Passchendaele, um, the, during two, two weeks only, they fired more than four million shells. So this is in a very narrow area. And um, there was a big problem with definitely the British shells, uh, that they had a lot of duds. So that means shells who, doesn't, who don't explode. And because of the ground structure, who is basically clay, it turns around during the ages. And um, because of that, shells who were deep are coming to the surface after a while. Also, by the working on the field, the agriculture, it comes up to the surface, and of course, a farmer finds a shell. So they're still dangerous? They're still dangerous, yeah. Um, still, accidents happened. Uh, last year, there was an accident uh, with a farmer who um, struck a shell, who exploded. He was lucky, he didn't die, he was uh, slightly wounded. But, uh, yeah, accidents do happen, and in the post-war years, uh, people were trying to dismantle the shells themselves for the copper and the metal. And uh, also the, the cleaning of the, the countryside uh, was done by civilians. So a lot of people died post-war also because of the remaining shells of the war. Uh, we also find uh, from time to time bodies. Uh, for example, five years ago when we were uh, digging uh, a gas tube, to connect the house with with uh, with gas, uh, we found a, a German uh, a German soldier who still, uh, thanks God, who still had his amulet uh, with the wallet with his passport, and and but then the family came over and there was there was a, a service uh, with with the consul and, and and the ambassador of Germany and so on. Oh my sweet the sound. That's still shocking that nowadays um, still soldiers are found in the fields. 
So we're talking about uh, approximately 30,000 soldiers who still have no grave, if not a marker saying known unto God, so unknown. So it's 30,000 soldiers who are somewhere, not found, uh, not buried decently. I got involved by the excavation of um, five uh, Australian soldiers. Um, they were buried actually under the road. A road was laid there after the war. So the, the bodies and the remains were very well pre preserved. One of them was buried under what we call a gas uh, poncho, and, and some sort of rubber uh, sheet where you can actually sleep on if you want to, or use it for shelter against rain. And because of that, it was like a mummy. And um, the moment when we, we took the, the sheet away, um, being face to face with death, being face to face with war, was for me something who will last forever in my mind. So, um, of course, as soon as the air got in touch with everything, it, it was falling apart. It was very strange as well, like, okay, you get five minutes to look at me, and then everything changes. And uh, it will remain in my mind, I think, for the rest of my life. It was very, very impressive. For the most part, the landscape around Ypres now feels quite peaceful. It's a hilly landscape dotted with farms and spires from towns poking up at nearly all points on the horizon. But even if you came here not knowing the history, I think you'd sense that something had gone on. Even if you were blind to the cemeteries that pop up every half kilometer or so, you'd feel a kind of weight here that you couldn't ignore. I have moments where I feel very strange. For example, New Year's Eve. Um, you have fireworks everywhere going up, and then sometimes I stand and watch over the fields of the battlefields and I thought, oh yeah, this, this must have been about the same sound and feeling you had so many years ago when you were actually here on the battlefields. The, the, the lights going up from the flares and exploding and you hear distant noises of fireworks exploding who was comparing to shells, you know. You have that, so maybe a minute of, of realization like, we're now celebrating, but this used to be battlefields. So the massacre and, and, and the senselessness of, of, of the attacks is flabbergasting if you think about it. Why, you know? It's, it's half a million people who died or were wounded or disappeared for five miles of dirt, mud. That's about it. It's really sad. And that's why it's so important to at least try the best that we can uh, to commemorate these people. Um, I think it was Harry Patch, one of the last veterans, who was um, saying about Bellowar, the, the fun theme park. They asked the question, Harry, what do you feel about having a fun theme park on the battlefield? And he answered with something who will remind him of my mind forever. He said, well, what do you prefer, the screaming of playing children or the screaming of dying men? This is where we fought for. Guilty Landscape was produced by Anique C and it originally aired on the programme Earthbeat from Radio Netherlands Worldwide. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Dennis Funk, watching over things for Glenn Maxi. This hour, stories about the aftermath of war. 
After we got married, uh, we got an apartment on Haibachung near the Tendik Market. It's not the best part of town, but not the worst either. Very lively, bustling, noisy area. I had an apartment of my own, you know. Life couldn't have been better, I thought. That was my Elliot, one of the main characters from our next story. She's talking about her life in Saigon during the early days of the Vietnam War. Today, she lives outside of Los Angeles, but in the start of the 1960s, Mai was a part of a secret Pentagon project that interviewed captured North Vietnamese soldiers and guerrillas to measure their morale in the wake of relentless bombings from American forces. In this episode from the podcast Revisionist History, host Malcolm Gladwell takes us into that study and looks at how the researchers' experience in previous conflicts shaped their mixed perceptions of its findings. Here's Malcolm. The project was run by the RAND Corporation, a think tank based in Santa Monica, California, home to an extraordinary collection of intellectuals and thinkers and policy wonks. RAND is the kind of place where everyone speaks in complete paragraphs, and if you close your eyes as you listen, you can almost see the footnotes at the end of each one of those perfect paragraphs. The Defense Department relied on them heavily in those years. Still does. Tell me about how you come to work for RAND. Uh, Dave knew somebody at McVie who was uh, an officer, a graduate student. Dave is Mai's husband, an American academic. MACV stands for Military Assistance Command of Vietnam, headquarters for the Vietnam War. So anyway, Dave knew this guy, who was also a graduate student, doing his military stint. And his wife, an American, was working at RAND. Mai Elliott is Vietnamese, and she ends up working at RAND in Saigon for a man named Leon Garay, one of Rand's most brilliant academics. He ran the secret study, and he's a big part of this story. Here's an interview Rand recorded with Garay just before he died in 2007. And how did you end up getting into Vietnam? I got drafted. Well, I was semi-volunteered, but I got drafted. The chief of Air Force Intelligence asked me to go. Garay set up shop in an old French-style villa near the presidential palace in downtown Saigon, 176 Rue Pasteur. The house is still there. Flame trees and tamarind line the street, quiet, discreet. This was in 1964, just when Saigon was beginning to fall apart. Still, if you were a Westerner, you might go to the exclusive Cirque Sportif on the humid afternoons to sit by the pool or play tennis or have a cocktail on the veranda of the Continental Hotel. Maybe you'd hear a bomb or two off in the distance. Later, of course, things would get far worse. The house we lived in, in Saigon, was directly under the trajectory of the rockets that the Viet Cong were firing at the palace. So we had a great experience of ducking under the dining room table. Gray had been working in the Santa Monica office of Rand when he was summoned to Vietnam. It was a job no one really wanted. Who would leave Southern California for Saigon? The Pentagon wanted him to run a project interviewing Viet Cong prisoners and defectors. Gray jumped at the chance. I had to organize my own team of Vietnamese. We were producing interview reports or interrogation reports for the U.S., for RAND, and for the chief of the intelligence of the Vietnamese armed forces. They all got copies. Later, Leon Gray got into trouble, or at least into an argument. 
and Rand brought in a third person to fix things, Conrad Kellen. I was supposed to be indoctrinated by Leon Gouray. He was supposed to tell me about Vietnam. But I got very quickly the feeling uh, that he was extremely partisan, you know, for the, for the South, which of course was part of his job. Mm-hmm. That woman's voice you hear, that's my Elliot again. She interviewed Kellen in Santa Monica after he retired from Rand for a history she wrote called Rand in Southeast Asia, a history of the Vietnam War. A brilliant book, by the way. He was sort of Mr. Vietnam at, at Rand, you know, yeah. in, in the South, Mr. South Vietnam. Uh-huh. And I sort of became his uh, sort of successor in a way. The story that follows is about these three people, Mai Elliott, Leon Garay, Conrad Kellen, and how their lives intersected over a minor and forgotten episode in the Vietnam War called the Viet Cong Motivation and Morale Project. I say minor because what happened in that French villa on 176 Rue Pasteur didn't swing the war one way or another. Nobody who was part of the study ever fired a gun or dropped a bomb. But the story of the morale project says a lot about something that has obsessed us ever since. Intelligence failure. Why is it so hard to tell what your enemy is thinking? That question came up after 9-11, during the two Gulf Wars. It came up again in Afghanistan. It comes up today with ISIS. And every time we get it wrong, every time our enemies take us by surprise, we always say, if only we knew more about them. If only we had more information about our adversaries, more spies in the ground, more satellite images, more intercepted communications, more of everything. Do you know how many federal government organizations there are just devoted to counterterrorism? 1,271. And another 1,931 private companies. Do you know how many Americans hold top-secret security clearances? 854,000. Those numbers all come from an extraordinary Washington Post investigation from six years ago. And here's the most incredible statistic of all. Just since 9-11, just to house top-secret intelligence work, and just in the Washington, D.C. area, 17 million square feet of new office space has been built to house intelligence operations. 17 million. We want to know everything about our enemies. But what the Viet Cong Motivation and Morale Project tells us is this. You can know everything there is to know about your enemy. Everything. And that still won't solve your problem. Vietnam was a French colony from 1887 until 1954. Then the French lost control of the country. It was split in half. Communists took over the North. An American-backed regime came into power in the South. Over the next decade, conditions inside South Vietnam slowly deteriorated. The government was unpopular. There were protests in the streets, a military coup. And the North Vietnamese started sending guerrillas, known as the Viet Cong, over the border to try and recruit South Vietnamese to their cause. That's why the Vietnam War, at least U.S. involvement there, starts in the early 1960s. Because the United States feels compelled to help the South turn back the Viet Cong. Wars are usually about territory. Country X invades country Y. Country Y fights back. But this is a weird kind of war. The U.S. and the South Vietnamese have no intention of invading the North. 
They decide instead that they'll just bomb the North Vietnamese until they give up, until they realize that exporting guerrillas over the border isn't worth it. The Vietnam War is a war of persuasion, a crude kind of persuasion. The goal is to break the other side's will. The new theory is that revolutionary development may look good on paper, but nothing pacifies quite like old-fashioned military might. An allied force of more than 8,000 men today tightened its hold on the Batangan Peninsula on South Vietnam's central coast. But if your goal is to break someone's will, how do you know if your strategy's working? In the early 1960s, when the U.S. first starts sending troops to fight the Viet Cong, there was a problem. No one knew anything about the Viet Cong. Almost no one at the Pentagon or the State Department even spoke Vietnamese. The special advisor to the American general in South Vietnam at the time was an Australian called Colonel Sarong. And you know what he said? I'll quote him directly. These people are simply what we call in many countries juvenile delinquents. That's the best he could offer in terms of intelligence about the Viet Cong. So what do you do if you're bombing someone you know nothing about? And you want to know how this unknown person feels? You call on the RAND Corporation. So Rand rents the villa on Rue Pasteur and brings in Leon Garay to run the show. Garay was Russian by birth. His family history was remarkable. His parents were Mensheviks. The Mensheviks were the socialist moderates who split off from Lenin during the Bolshevik Revolution. They were in Russia during the revolution. This is Leon Garay's son, Daniel. He's a national security and policy expert with the Lexington Institute in Arlington, Virginia. They participated in the revolution. In fact, my grandparents met in prison. My grandmother uh, used to uh, smoke unfiltered cigarettes in a little holder, and she would you know, cut them in half. They were living in Moscow? Or? They were in Moscow. Yeah. They were in Moscow, and they were, you know, fighting the system. He, My grandfather ran an illegal printing press and the whole thing. In 1922, just after Leon is born, the Greys are kicked out of the country. They ended up next in Berlin. And in 1933... They shut the doors, locked the building up, and left. Just walked away and went to Paris. And then they got out of Paris on the same train that Humphrey Bogart did in uh, Casablanca, heading south, and meandered south, went through Spain to Portugal, and then got to the U.S. after that. So they stayed one one step ahead of the the tide of evil for about almost 20 years. Wow. Yeah. Which of the Bolsheviks did he, he must have known some of them personally? Oh, he knew all of them personally. They knew Trotsky, they knew Lenin, they knew Stalin, they knew the whole uh, the whole crowd. Man, you're leftist royalty. Yeah, well, yeah, right. The Greys end up in New York City, 96th and Broadway, deep in the world of Eastern European emigres. Leon serves in the army, fights in the Battle of the Bulge, and ends up in counterintelligence. How do you think the refugee experience shaped your father? Number of ways. I think the overriding one was we've retreated this far and no farther. So it was it was a view of sort of America, not just a city on the hill, not just, but you know, there's nowhere left to retreat to. The country needs to be truly defended. He got a home. He got a country. He got acceptance. All of that was terribly, terribly important. So this is who Rand puts in charge of the Vietnam operation, Leon Garay, a patriot, in the way that only an immigrant can be a patriot. 
he was suave. He was very charming. He had um, a great sense of humor, very articulate, energetic, enthusiastic. So personally, I liked him. The only thing I didn't like about him was the fact that he was a great ladies' man, you know. <laughs> and there were a lot of rumors about that. But uh, as a person, I liked him. Gray spoke German, Russian, French, all fluently. Big, thick head of black hair, that amazing accent. He was the embodiment of the European intellectual. He had an amazing kind of research style all of his life where there would be stacks of, of documents in Russian innings where on his desk and he literally would be talking to you and it would sort of be, well, you know, there was this recent thing and he sort of, not, it's not an eidetic memory, but he was certainly kind of librarian, encyclopedic in that kind of, of, of sense. Gray meets Robert McNamara, President Johnson's Secretary of Defense, and tells him what he thinks needs to be done. That is, to really answer the question of how the bombing is affecting the Viet Cong. That's the question I remember very clearly. Again, this is from the interview Gray did with the Rand Archives a decade ago, at the end of his life. And he said, what is your funding? I told him we had $100,000. He said, what could you do with a million? That was his question. And I said, I can do more of this stuff, and I have more people doing the interviewing. He says, you have it. A million dollars in Saigon in the mid-60s was a king's ransom. So Gray hires a team of locals to fan out across the South Vietnamese countryside to interview defectors from North Vietnam and captured Viet Cong guerrillas. That's where Mai Elliott comes in. She was one of Gray's interviewers, and her story is every bit as fascinating as Leon Gray's. My father was appointed to uh, Haiphong. He became mayor of Haiphong. She grew up in the north. Before the country was divided, her father was part of the French colonial administration. And as mayor, he had a lot of authority. He was almost like the king of that little town. And we live in an enormous uh, house with an enormous garden in front and back with a staff uh, of servants and even a platoon of guards, you know, who stood guard outside our gate. So that was really the best time of my life. Then the French get defeated in the north by the communists. Vietnam is divided in two. It happened so suddenly. We just packed up and left everything, and we lost everything. So when it happened, um, we were in a panic. We didn't know what to do. My father had, of course, collaborated with the French. I didn't know, you know, I didn't understand a thing, but my father was afraid that the communists would come in and, and kill him. My Elliot didn't come to the Rand Project as a blank slate. She came with a history. She had to flee for her life from the communists in the north. Now she's been hired by Rand to figure out the communists, the same people who chased her family away. The interviewers would go out in teams of three or four. Sometimes the groups would stay in Saigon and go to the prison where captured Viet Cong were held. Other times they would head out into the countryside hitching a ride on military planes to the Mekong Delta. The interviews were taped. They'd offer their subjects cigarettes. Sometimes they'd sit outside under the trees. It was friendly, not confrontational. The interviewers made it clear that they were only doing a research project. If the subject was uninteresting or reluctant, the sessions would be short. Other times, they might last for days. Then it was back to the villa on Rue Pasteur, where the interviews would be transcribed translated and edited. 
Vì lúc đó tôi còn nhỏ gì? Lúc đó tôi tuổi còn quá nhỏ. Cái phong trào đó. That's my Elliot in the central Mekong Delta, interviewing a former company commander for the 261st Battalion of the North Vietnamese Army. There was a lot of questions about bombing. What weapons do you fear the most? Uh, what had the most effect on your unit and your operations? And with the North Vietnamese who infiltrated into the South, tell us about conditions. Are you march from the North to the South? Were there bombings, you know, along the way? Things like that. The Morale Project would eventually produce 62,000 pages of transcripts, interviews with captured Viet Cong and others. 62,000 pages. This isn't some focus group conducted by a PR firm where a few dozen people are interviewed for an hour. This is one of the most extraordinary, encyclopedic, detailed portraits of an enemy ever created. Remember, no one in Washington really knew anything about Vietnam in the early 1960s. Now there was a million-dollar operation on the Rue Pasteur painting a living, breathing portrait of the other side. This stuff was gold. Garay takes the results and makes the rounds. His favorite statistic was this. When Rand started its study, 65% of defectors and prisoners believed the Viet Cong could win. After a year of heavy U.S. bombing, that number was down to 20%. The enemy was on the ropes. Garay briefs the Air Force, Army, U.S. Embassy, then off to Honolulu to the headquarters of the Army of the Pacific, Rand in Santa Monica, Washington, D.C., to the Pentagon and to the White House. Helicopters would pick him up in Saigon and whisk him to aircraft carriers. At the villa on Rue Pasteur, he holds cocktail parties for everyone who was anyone in South Vietnam. Henry Kissinger, Walter Mondale, the U.S. senator, later to become Jimmy Carter's vice president. Gray meets with visiting journalists, CIA officers. His stuff goes right to the top. Well, uh, we've had an interesting report from a man named Gray who uh, works for the Rand Corporation, and we hired the Rand Corporation. That's Robert McNamara, Johnson's defense secretary, from tapes made of White House conversations. In 1965 and 66, President Lyndon Johnson decides to pull the United States deeper and deeper into Vietnam. And the story was that LBJ used to walk around with a summary of Gray's findings in his back pocket. Wars require public justification. If you're going to put thousands of lives at risk, you need to explain to your citizens just what you're doing. And that's what Leon Garay offered in the crucial early years of the Vietnam War. He offered justification. Enter Conrad Kellen, the third person in our story. When did I come to Rand? Oh, well, I lived in New York in 64. I think it was. Kellen was a battered veteran of World War II and a little bit of a legend. I once spent two weeks in Los Angeles just going from one person's house to the next asking for their memories of Kellen. Everybody remembers Conrad Kellen. If you took the absolute best of 19th century Central Europe and put it in a time machine that opened its doors in 1960s Southern California, that would be Kellen. I read in the papers that some people in, in Washington some smart boys had showered the North with millions of leaflets. Yes. 
in which they had told the Vietnamese they should lay down their arms mm -hmm. uh, because we were good people and they, their leaders were bad people, you know, the ordinary nonsense. And they should stop fighting the war. Kellen served in U.S. Army intelligence in the Second World War, specializing in psychological warfare. So later, when he reads how the U.S. was using leaflets in Vietnam, he gets angry. We're doing it all wrong. And so I wrote a letter to the New York Times and said it was obvious nonsense mm -hmm. to shower large numbers of soldiers with a leaflet saying, stop that war. Soldiers don't stop wars. Soldiers don't begin wars and soldiers don't stop wars. Mm -hmm. So if you want to stop a war, you have to do it differently. You know? So I got a call from them here, from the Rand people, and they wanted me to come and, and be be part of their system, and I said, okay, so I came to America, came to Los Angeles. Kellen grew up in Berlin, wealthy, cultured. His father owned a big brewery. His full name was Katzen Ellenbogen, and the Katzen Ellenbogens were one of the great Jewish families of Europe. But when Hitler came to power, Kellen packed his bags. He said later that he knew on some instinctive level that things would not end well for the Jews in Germany. He goes to Paris, becomes friends with the French writer Jean Cocteau. His life is full of moments like this. He gets on a boat to America and meets the mobster Dutch Schultz, who offers him a job. He arrives in New York and works for the legendary investor Benjamin Graham, who was the mentor of Warren Buffett. He goes to California and is the private secretary of the Nobel Prize-winning novelist Thomas Mann. Callan was impossibly handsome, dashing, over six feet tall. He was an expert in golf, handwriting analysis, and Ferraris. Both his sisters earned PhDs from Berkeley, one in chemistry, the other in biology. His brother escapes from Nazi Germany, lands in New York, and if you go online and look up the assets of his personal foundation, it's $665 million. His stepmother was painted by Renoir, a family friend. He was cousins with Einstein. I mean, after a bit, it gets ridiculous. The craziest story about Kellen is when he was in Paris in 1945. The war has just ended, and he's sitting in the Café Select near the Champs-Élysées when a young woman approaches him. She says, Are you an American GI? He says, Yes. She says, Are you going back to the States? He says, Yes. She says, You have to do me a favor. My father's an artist. I have to get his work safely to America. Because, of course, Europe was in chaos. And Kellen says, By all means. But then she goes away and comes back with this massive stack of canvases. And he says, there's no way I can take that. And she says, you have to. Whereupon Kellen embarks on this epic month-long struggle to get these paintings safely across the ocean, which includes being trapped in the back of an open truck during a rainstorm and throwing his coat over the pile of paintings to keep them from being ruined, and staying up all night, night after night, because he's terrified someone will steal them. Who's the painter? Marc Chagall. I should say Marc Chagall, of course, because only Conrad Kellen would end up transporting the collected works of one of the most famous artists of the 20th century to America in a rainstorm on the back of a truck. The deal Chagall's daughter made with him was that he could take one picture and keep it for himself. So he takes one, a famous one. Then he sells it in the 1950s for what seemed like a lot of money at the time. But of course, it's a Chagall, a famous Chagall. 
and every now and again over the years, he'd spot his old painting in an auction catalogue worth more and more and more, and he'd bury his head in his hands and say, oh... By late 1966, when Conrad Kellen gets to Rand, the place is in turmoil. The Vietnam War has split its ranks down the middle. This is the think tank that the Pentagon has been relying on to make sense of the war. But there's a group inside Rand that believes the war is a terrible mistake. I don't know if you remember the story of the Pentagon Papers. This was the secret 47-volume study of U.S. political and military involvement in the Vietnam War. It was commissioned by the Pentagon. The Pentagon Papers showed that the White House had been misleading Congress and the American people for years about how well the war was going. A copy of the Pentagon Papers was famously leaked to the New York Times in 1971 by Daniel Ellsberg. Ellsberg's leak was really the beginning of the end of public support for the war. And who was Ellsberg? An employee of Rand. And where did he get his copy of the Pentagon Papers? He took it from the safe at Rand. And guess who was one of Ellsberg's best friends and confidants at Rand? Conrad Kellen, of course, as always, in the thick of things. But the moment we're talking about is well before the Pentagon Papers controversy. It's at the beginning of the divisions within Rand, 1965-66. Rand is a place that prides itself on objectivity and rigor. Everything is checked and double-checked and fact-checked and reviewed in-house before it's released. But the Rand brass is beginning to worry that when Leon Garay gets whisked by helicopter to aircraft carriers or huddles with generals at his cocktail parties at the villa on Rue Pasteur, he's bypassing all that. They worry that he's gone rogue. So they bring in Conrad Kellen to be a second set of eyes. Kellen comes in and reads a thousand of the Viet Cong interviews. Remember, many of these interviews ran to 15 or 20 single-space type pages. It's a huge amount of work. And Kellen decides Garay has it all wrong. The Viet Cong are not crumbling. On the contrary. Here's Kellen again from his interview with Mai Elliott. I could see from the interviews that we were not going to win this war. Mm. That Mm. was my conclusion. I was one of the very few people at Rand who had that idea. And, and most of them were gung-ho. They were going, and they couldn't understand. To this day, they don't understand how a nation with two million, million soldiers, battleships, airplanes cannot win over Vietnam. So here we have two men, two sophisticated European intellectuals with access to the richest trove of intelligence in the entire war. Gray goes first and says, we're winning. Kellen comes along, looks at exactly the same evidence, and says, we're never going to win. Then there's my Elliot. If Gray is at the villa on Rue Pasteur and Kellen is back in Santa Monica, Elliot is actually in the field, in the jungles and villages, talking to actual defectors and Viet Cong guerrillas. And what does she think will happen? She doesn't know. She's confused. I walked into this cell, and I didn't know what to expect. And then in walked this man, uh, middle-aged, very briskly. And he looked, you know, like a man like of authority. And uh, he stopped dead in his tracks. Elliot is talking about an early interview she did 
that had a huge impact on her that she never forgot. You have to remember what I looked like at the time. I was young, I was dressed in Western clothes, and uh, I didn't look like the military interrogators he had seen. So he was surprised to see me, and he was kind of guarded, suspicious. He didn't know what to expect. And uh, I was afraid. I didn't know what was going to happen because I had grown up believing that the communists were bloodthirsty. They started to talk, and gradually he relaxed and she relaxed. You know, I had never met a, a communist before face-to-face, so I just my curiosity just took over, and I just asked him a lot of questions about him and his family and his background and his beliefs, and he had devoted his whole life to fighting the French, and now he was fighting the Americans. And he seemed to have a lot of integrity. And what effect did listening to him have on you? Well, it really confused me because I had believed that the communists were sort of like thugs. We call we call them dochomatnga, meaning thugs. And what's uh, the literal translation of that? Dochomatnga, the head of a buffalo and the body of a horse. So somebody who's not, you know, quite human, <laughs> a, a thug. What the captured Viet Cong officers said was straightforward. The intelligence was straightforward. But my Elliot's reaction was anything but straightforward. And so I left with more questions than answers. And, and I began to see that the picture was not black and white, like I had believed at the beginning. But then Elliot says something crucial. She says it didn't change her mind. She saw the evidence with her own eyes. She did the interview with the general, but it wasn't enough. Remember her circumstances. She comes from a family of privilege, and the rise of the communists in the north takes all that away. They end up living in a little hut in Saigon. The Viet Cong is not some abstract force. They were a personal threat to her family. I think for people whose backs were against the wall and who thought that their survival depended on the communists not winning, then seeing the evidence doesn't mean that you change your mind. Seeing the evidence doesn't mean that you change your mind. Seeing the evidence just increases your fear because you fear that, you know, that the communists would win and it would be the end of you and your family. And you don't want to face it, you know. You don't want to think about it. Leon Garay might well have read the transcript of that same interview that Mai Elliott did with the Viet Cong officer. And his interpretation would be, that guy's going to give up. If we just bomb people like him some more, we'll destroy their will. In retrospect, completely wrong. But think about this from Garay's perspective. Well, look, if you want to understand that, I, I am a professional refugee. I've been a refugee from Russia to Germany, from Germany to France, and from France to the United States. So three times. So as far as I was concerned, this was going to be my country, and Whatever it was, the national interest of the United States was sufficient reason to pursue this thing. 
By this thing, he means fighting communism, the enemy that forced Gray out of his home in Russia. And in the 1960s, this thing, communism, is still out there. It spread to Vietnam. Think how much Gray had to believe that America was winning the war. Leon Gray felt there was nowhere left to retreat to. <laughs> you don't pick and choose your wars. Your country's at war, it's at war, period. You don't pick and choose whether you approve of it or not. That's nonsense. That's chaos. There's a moment in Mai Elliott's interview with Conrad Kellen where he talks about Gray, about what it means to be a refugee. I think, like many, eventually became great opportunists. You know, what else could they do? I mean, they, 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 if you were an opportunist, at least you had the American establishment on your side, you know. Mm-hmm. The refugee is an opportunist because he is at the mercy of whatever country will take him. And I can't help but think that Kellen is also talking about himself here. He's acknowledging the biases that he brought to the interviews, because he's a refugee too. He escaped from the Nazis. He witnessed the destruction of everything he once knew, his home, his community, his family, his privilege. How can that not scar you? At one point, Kellen explains to Elliot why he never actually traveled to Vietnam, even though he was working on a project about Vietnam. I was not going to Vietnam because one war was enough for me. I didn't yeah. want to have two wars. Uh-huh. One war was enough for me. I imagine Kellen read that same interview Elliot did, the one with the Viet Cong officer. Kellen sees the man's determination, and when he thinks about that resolve through the prism of his own experience, he realizes... I can't match that. Not anymore. One war was enough for me. Over and again in his interview with Mai Elliott, Kellen comes back to this. War wasn't some conceptual abstraction for him. It wasn't an intellectual question like it was for so many at Rand. It was real. He lived through it. There were an awful lot of civilians around in in, in this whole thing, and this whole Vietnam thing, who talked about casualties, for instance, casualties. They didn't give a damn about anything. They, they, if somebody came back and said, you know, we took and took such and such a place uh, with, I don't know, 50, 60 casualties, well, a casualty is not a dead person. A casualty is, is something theoretical for these people. One interview with a Viet Cong officer, one fantastic bit of intelligence, an insight into the enemy's mind, and yet everyone was in disagreement on what it meant, because everyone was looking at it through a different set of eyes. That's why intelligence failures happen. It's not because someone screws up or is stupid or lazy. It's because the people who make sense of intelligence are human beings with their own histories and biases. So what happens to the three people in our story? Gray gets recalled from Vietnam in April of 1967. Clearly, Rand asked me to stop going there. To stop going to Vietnam, to return to Santa Monica. I went back, and then I was told that my presence was an embarrassment. I don't know why. The suggestion was very clear that I should look for something else. How do you feel about that? Were you disappointed? Of course. 
I like Rand. He was hung out to dry. His son Daniel is a lot more blunt. My sense of it was they wanted, you know, to cut uh, loose from anything having to do with Vietnam. And the way to cut loose from this project and from him was to try and discredit the analysis and sort of then, you know, okay, you're, you're now no longer a legitimate analyst. Well, you really do need to go. Yeah. Kind of thing. And how did, can you describe your father in those years? So I think he was feeling quite beaten down. And frankly, I suspect there was a degree of just physical exhaustion. It may have been not that different than, you know, when the, he and his family kept getting driven out of, you know, cities in Europe and had to restart the whole process and restart the fight. I think there was a certain degree of that. Garay eventually moves to Florida, takes a post at the University of Miami, fights the Cold War from Coral Gables. As for Mai Elliott, she eventually moves to America, lives in Ithaca, and it's only then, from the safety of upstate New York, that she finally accepts what the Viet Cong officer was telling her. I wish it would have been easier for me to come to that conclusion earlier, because it was just years of agonizing and being ambiguous. She finally admits it to herself. The North Vietnamese were determined. The war was wrong and unwinnable. I think that it's easier to be objective when you you don't have a personal stake in a situation. And you can see the evidence and say, oh yeah, the war is not working, let's end it. But when you have a very deep, strong personal stake, it's a lot harder because you're talking about survival of your family, your relatives. My Elliot finally faced the difficult truth. As for Kellen, Kellen sounds the alarm almost from the beginning of his time at Rand. He says the intelligence tells us the war cannot be won. But of course, if you know even the slightest bit about the Vietnam War, you know that no one listened to him at least until it was too late. He suffered, like all of them did. I can only say that the people that I knew who talked a lot about scientific talk, scientific, this and that, were the most unscientific people you can imagine. They just picked somebody, and then if they agreed with him or he agreed with them, then he was an expert, and if he didn't agree with him, he was not an expert, and then they wrote it out. The most unscientific people you can imagine... I'm not sure it's any different today, is it? And everybody wrote reports for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, was a, it was almost like a comedy, you know. It was mm. so stupid. I got very angry about that. Kellen died in 2007. And not long ago I went to see his wife in that same house up in the hills. His daughters were there as well. They talked about how the Second World War never left him. He had terrible memories. And at the very end of his life, all those memories came back with a vengeance. Kellen would lie in his bed in sunny, beautiful Santa Monica, and he would dream that the Nazis were coming up the hill to take him away. Saigon 1965 was produced by Mia Lobel, Roxanne Scott and Jacob Smith for the podcast Revisionist History, hosted by Malcolm Gladwell. 
If you're interested in the show, you can binge on the entire first season and check out the second season, which just recently started, wherever you download your podcasts. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Dennis Funk. The program is produced by myself with assistance from Isabel Vasquez, and it's curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Seifer. Music featured on ReSound is provided by Patient Sounds, a private press record label and book publisher based in Chicago. You can find a track list for this episode along with links to songs from the Patient Sounds catalogue at thirdcoastfestival.org. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a non-profit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Manaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound. All diamonds, no rough. See you next time.